0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Monique Verdan taped live at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. Verdan is included in the Nasher's Spirit in the Land, an exhibition that considers today's ecological concerns and demonstrates how our identities and natural environments are intertwined. The show particularly focuses on the relationship between the mainland United States and the Caribbean. Curated by Trevor Schoonmaker, Spirit in the Land will be on view through July 9th. The exhibition is accompanied by a catalog, which, as of the day I'm recording this, is available only at the Nasher. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Verdan's work is also on view at the Contemporary Art Center New Orleans in The Float Lab, The Heartbeat of Invisible Rivers. It's a project of Verdan's The Land Memory Bank, Mondo Bizarro, and Jeff Becker that uses music, theater, visual art, and boat building to respond to Louisiana's interconnected struggles against land loss, environmental racism, and displacement. The Float Lab is on view through October 1st. For Dan's photography, filmmaking and collages most often examine how climate change and industry are impacting traditional lifeways in a part of South Louisiana bordered by the Atchafalaya and Mississippi Rivers. Among her many exhibition credits is Prospect 4 in New Orleans. Quick note, we'll have a trailer of My Louisiana Love, a film Verdan co produced, on the show page on manpodcast.com. Monique Verdan taped live at the Nasher after the break. Conceptual artist Celia Alvarez Munoz implements a playful, witty style, often characterized by her use of bilingual puns and mistranslations in both text and image. Now through August 2023, explore Munoz's first career retrospective at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Spanning 40 years and featuring over 35 artworks, visitors will experience large-scale immersive installations, photographic series, and book projects that draw inspiration from Munoz's lived experience as a resident of the United States-Mexico borderlands. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. On view through February 19, 2023, at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the captivating new photography exhibition Uta Barth Peripheral Vision investigates the act of looking. In her multi-part works, Barth explores the impermanent qualities of light, as well as its ability to affect optical perception using techniques like intentionally blurring images, and capturing the way light travels across a room throughout the day. The exhibition traces Barth's 40-year career, from her early experimentations as a student to later studies of the eye's capabilities and the camera's role in helping an artist translate visual information into a photograph. Her most recent work is displayed here for the first time, a project commissioned in celebration of the Getty Center's 20th anniversary. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. As the Princeton University Art Museum constructs a new building, set to open in 2024, more than 100 works of American art from its collection are traveling the country in the exhibition Object Lessons in American Art, on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia through May 14th. Spanning the 18th century to the present, Object Lessons features works of Euro-American, African-American, and Native American art, and illustrates how fresh investigations and contemporary perspectives can inform and enrich its meaning. With these objects, the exhibition asks fundamental questions about artistic significance and how meaning changes across time, place, and context. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about the exhibition or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s through her groundbreaking black-and-white optical works of the early 1960s to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla. Nasher Sculpture Center presents Mark de Suvero Steel-Like Paper, an exhibition that explores the artist's six decades-long career and monumental vision. Plan your visit to see more than 30 sculptures presented alongside rarely seen drawings. Get tickets at nashersculpturecenter.org. Monique Verdam, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I think the place to start is with geography, because your work is as much about a specific place as is the work of, say, William Christenberry or, or James Vanderzee. Where are you from? And when did the specific industrial geography, if you will, of the place begin to interest you?
1: So I was born in Bulbantia which is at the end of the Mississippi River, and most people know this place as New Orleans. It was successfully rebranded by colonizers, but Bulbancha in Shakta means, Shakta or Shara means place of babbling languages or place of many tongues. And I actually learned this word in 2017 when the city was celebrating its 300-year anniversary. And I thought, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And it's way cooler than New Orleans. (laughs) And also to recognize that it's still living up to its name in that we welcome millions of visitors a year to this international port city but home for me is really downriver from the city. It's in a place known as Saint. Bernard Parish, which a parish is a county. Uh, Louisiana is still operating under Napoleonic law so we have things are different there. <laughs> and you know if you think of the state of Louisiana as looking like a boot in the big toe and my my mother's people are Creole, like some of the earliest colonizers into the Louisiana Territory, going back to the company of John Law and the plantation systems. And my father's people are, are from the Homa nation. And the territory that my grandparents come from is found between the Mississippi and the Chafalaya rivers, which are actually the same river, they just split. And it's known as the Shido, which means big country. I think of South Louisiana as a power point for the planet. It's, you know, with the Atchafalaya and Mississippi River basins, it's one of the biggest basins on the planet. So a place where water is coming to be purified and continuing on its cycle, a place where life from the Gulf of Mexico comes into the womb of the wetlands to regenerate place of migration, not only for people, but a major migratory flyway. So for me, though, the work that I've been doing, oh my gosh, over 20 years now, is really rooted to the stories from my Homa elders, and specifically my grandmother, Armitine Marie-Bio Verdin, who's in a lot of my images. And the stories of her life, and her way of life and watching her live off of the land and live with the cycles and the seasons and and also hearing stories of, of essentially our land in this amazing, magical wetland being stolen from our elders at the beginning of the 20th century when oil and gas was found. But I've come to realize that our struggle with the land loss did not begin then of course it's rooted to the times of uh, the french coming into our territory and claiming the high grounds and we've been pushed and pushed and pushed to the ends of the of the bayous and are now facing some of the most rapid land loss on the planet the statistic is that every 100 minutes, a uh, football field is lost from our shores. So uh, wrestling with both the stories of my elders and then also trying to make sense of, of how we got here. And I, I didn't use the language of climate change 20 years ago when I, when I first began doing the work. I was really inspired by my cousins who live in a place called Grand Bois, which means big woods found in the Yakni and their struggle and fight against these toxic waste pits, oil waste pits, that are in a flood zone less than 2,000 feet from where my relatives live. So that was really the the spark that kind of made me want to document to be able to, to stop it. I've learned a lot since then, <laughs> and I'm still wrestling with yeah, how we find sovereignty and and how we're able to, to have safe places to live and breathe and grow food or harvest from the the, the waters that are around us.
0: You mentioned being your HOMA and, and, and a former member indeed of of the tribal council. Former still?
1: Former, yes, I'm not really. <laughs> I realized out politics was not my place. <laughs>
0: So for some context, the, the United Homa Nation has about 19,000 registered members across six parishes or six counties in, in kind of the, the region between New Orleans and, and the Gulf. We've talked about colonizing powers a bit, but the Homa themselves, is the, as I understand it, are the product of other peoples having been pushed into the land you just described.
1: Yes. The modern Huma nation is, it's mixed. Mixed not only with different indigenous peoples from the Gulf South, but also with a lot of French and, and Spanish. And as I was saying, Bulbuncha, a place of many languages, there have been waves of immigrants that have found their way to the Delta. And this territory that is in the Yakni Shido to remember that French and Spanish alliances with Indigenous people was very different than relationships in the Northeast between English and and Indigenous folks. And from my understanding and, and the stories that have been told to us, there was, in the late 1600s, I found this in records of Jesuit journals, of course, there was a principal village of Homa, or Uma, as it was said, just north of Baton Rouge, or it was known as Itihoma, Red Stick, which marked the hunting grounds between the Homa were to the north and the Bayou Gula to the south. This site, present day, is known as Angola, Louisiana, which is where there's one of the largest penitentiaries on the planet. And at that time, is when it really starts marking this migration further south. And this territory, the Yakni Shido, according to our elders, was promised because our people helped to fight the English. And there was an agreement that they were given this this land between the two rivers. That's the one river, the Ashafalaya and the Mississippi. And that also was a place where Indigenous people along the Gulf South were finding a safe place to retreat to there in that if you went west of the Mississippi, you're kind of outside of these territories of tension where you had Spanish and French and English powers that were trying to claim. And so Biloxi, Atagapa Ishak, Aqualapisa, Sharamacha, Shakta, Homa, and other nations names that were never recorded in the historical record and and those that have been erased found safety there and in alliances that helped for the survival of of our people to today. The the Homa have a relationship with the United States government that goes back to the Louisiana Purchase, which happened in 1803. And shortly thereafter, it's recorded in, in in the in the history books that our elders met with Governor Claiborne petitioning for these land and water rights. And essentially we have been denied those rights ever since and had to adapt. And part of that is this moving further and further south, in that after the Louisiana Purchase happened, all of these American planters, really sugar planters, we're moving into the territory and taking the high ground, and yeah, we we went deep into the wetlands where you know you're in the you're in the, the bounty of the estuary. So had everything that we needed to survive, and of course, nobody wanted the swamplands, right? They wanted the high ground until black gold was found in the marshes, and and then the the removal from those territories began.
0: So there's this story of colonization and forced migration and kind of a fifth wave of in, a colonization in, in industries, activation, mobilization, and in the context of the United States Project, the preference for industry over people. And so with all that in, in, in my mind, as I've read interviews you've given over the years, I've noticed that you very often of your own volition before you're asked about it, raise the question of respect for the land, how much respect you have for an ever-changing landscape, how much respect you have for this place. You've, you've been telling us about that. How would you describe or define your, your respect for place and how you migrate it into pictures and moving pictures?
1: I want to start by saying that the water and the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico, and that interface of that kind of magical in-between salt and fresh, and knowing that I'm of that. I I didn't grow up in Ponochen, or on depending on who you ask. It's Point of the Oaks or Point of the Dog. But that's where (laughs) my grandparents come from. And when I would go there as a young person to visit relatives... I've, it felt so familiar. And at a certain point, I realized, it's like, oh, no, this place is in my DNA. I exist because this place has provided. And so that kind of kinship with that in-between land and water, water-land or land-water, whatever it is, I, I appreciate that I know that it's not just one or the other. And I think that I really wanted to give voice to the stories of my elders and to try to find a way to raise awareness to stop the, the genocide, really, that has continued. You have young children that are growing up next to waste pits who are also I I say this sometimes when I introduce myself that I live in the heart of Cancer Alley, just north of the dead zone, and it sounds like a really disgusting place. And the more I learn about all of these ugly realities of history and the layers upon layers that exist, I've also been really fortunate to to be exposed to and to experience the infinite beauty of the nature that exists around me. And I feel really fortunate that I've had elders who have taught me that the nature has everything that you need to survive. And I drive by multinational oil and gas companies every single day and I smell the toxic chemicals in the air. and. Every time I turn the tap on, I know that that water is coming from the Mississippi River and it's compromised. I think that the, the making of photographs, when I first started in the late 90s, I thought, oh, we are going to get those pits closed down. I'm going to take these photographs. And then my relatives kept bringing me further and further down the bayou. And I realized like, oh, oil pits are a problem, but land loss... And coastal erosion and sea level rise is is something that is not just a problem for South Louisiana. This is reflected across the planet. And also recognizing that I've been able to expose (laughs) very personal stories of my own and of others and I've had to be vulnerable <laughs> with kind of telling these intimate details about my life, but as a way to, to really allow people to, to understand, to not just be downloading the, the facts and the statistics, but to, to say, oh, okay, you want to talk about climate change? Well, the, here is a family. And My Louisiana Love, which is an hour-long documentary it came out in 2012, which is over 10 years ago now, which seems wild that time is going so fast. And when we released it, we thought we were kind of behind in that the documentary really puts a parentheses around 100 years in South Louisiana and showing these cycles of land loss and oil pits and Hurricane Katrina being a a big moment where that's a scar that we're still living with. And then the BP drilling disaster, which was when the Deepwater Horizon rig was leaking sweet crude into the Gulf of Mexico for over three months. And, you know, of course, there's been many storms and industrial accidents that have happened since then. So I think that, you know, I I did not set out to tell such a personal story, but I've recognized that my own wrestling with reality, and also, again, to just go back to the fact that my grandmother didn't know how to read or write her own name, (laughs) I'm sure she would have never thought she would be in gallery spaces, and that her story would continue to be aired on public television. But those women uh, who were my teachers are my teachers still. Their voices matter. Their stories are important. And the lessons, I'm just trying to, to share them. Yeah, I'm feeling very emotional right now. I mean, I think it's, you know, I can... I can make it very academic, and I can talk about land loss, and <laughs> I can talk about the politics of place and discrimination. And but the truth is, is that I love my people, I love my home, and I recognize that it's changing so quickly, and I feel really overwhelmed <laughs> in that our just like our planetary existence right now. But I think that being able to to recognize the truth is, is a gateway for others to be able to, to wrestle with their own realities, even if they you know, think that it's far away. To know that our environmental conditions, they affect everything from our culture, to what we eat, where we dance. And I never really wanted to be in a gallery space. I still feel really awkward <laughs> in museums. I feel more comfortable outside showing my photograph just you know, like hanging it on a shrimp net in the wind. Like that feels I'm like good with that. but I'm also I'm very grateful that that the work is out in the world and that it it helps people to understand why South Louisiana matters, that it's not just a place where we have carnival and crawfish and cajuns, that it's much more complicated. And I always say that if you need a really good, bad example about what you shouldn't do, look at South Louisiana.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can think of a few places like that. (laughs) One of the ways that combination of affection and horror manifests itself in your work again and again and again is how so much of your work includes ghost trees and ghost forests. So a ghost tree is a dead tree. A ghost forest is a bunch of dead trees kind of standing in the midst of water or or, or, or other living things. What, what about, and in fact, maybe not the first shot of My Louisiana Love, but maybe the second shot of My Louisiana Love is a ghost forest. This is going to sound much more crass than I intended it to, but why did dead trees specifically interest you?
1: <laughs> Someone once told me that the spirits of ancestors live in in dead trees. I don't know who told me that. I was I was probably like 18 years old, and it was maybe when I was taking one of my some of my first photographs and getting a bit of critique. It's a marking of time. I'm also someone who loves cemeteries. In South Louisiana, we have we can't bury our people in the ground because The coffins pop up when the floodwaters come. So we have mausoleums and tombs, above-ground tombs. And I think of those ghost forests as markers in time. I've also watched as those ghost forests have disappeared.
0: By, By disappeared, you mean...
1: With every storm that comes, things get knocked over. Even the dead tree them. gets knocked Even over. Even the dead tree, saying. yeah. So the reason why we have ghost forest in South Louisiana is we have cheniers. They're ridges or oak ridges that run south. And when salt water comes in, it's killing those trees, killing the root systems of those trees. They're not able to adapt to salt water conditions. So I think it's, a, it's telling of time and to be with you know, even my father's generation of people who remembered those trees being alive. And and I never saw that, but now I know of places where I knew of trees being alive that have now become part of the ghost forest. And there's something really, I don't know, they're really, they're stoic. And they're like, they're like, I'm gone and I'm still here. Not sure. I mean, I think it, it's witnessing to they're witnesses to land loss, and it's important that that they're seen before they fall down, and or before that land that they're holding on to, even with their their dead bones, disappears. And that's the reality of South Louisiana is that we are going to continue to have forests that become Ghost Forest. And we're having to choose what we hold on to and what we let go of at this point in time. And that's communities and places and ways of life. As we're going through this kind of bottleneck of of biodiversity on the planet disappearing, I think that the remnants of what were, are good symbols for us to remember what could be. And I've also recognized that if you give the nature the space to do what it does, that it's incredible how regenerative it can be. And I think that we really need to recognize the intelligence of nature and learn how to be in good relationship to support it and to quit making decisions that are short-sighted and tied to extraction and making money. I mean, South Louisiana is one of the poorest places in the United States, yet we have some of the biggest and oldest oil refineries in the nation, part of these multinational corporations that are Getting very wealthy off of the sacrifices that everyday people are having to make.
0: As I look at those trees in your pictures, the dead ones, I think of the 300 year art history and history of trees as symbols in the United States. You know, going back to the American elm, the Liberty Tree of Boston fame, the Charter Oak in Connecticut so named because charter from the king granting Connecticut a certain amount of Republican self-government, the only semi-Republican self-government system in the colonies. That charter was hidden in, in an oak tree for years. Frederick Church makes a painting, or two paintings, in 1846 of the charter oak and the Liberty tree next to each other in an invented composition. During the Civil War, a giant sequoia 3,000-year-old giant sequoia called the Grizzly Giant becomes a symbol of California's unionism. Trees have, in American art and photography history, almost always meant things, things about how we see ourselves as a nation. Do you think about ghost trees and ghost forests in those kinds of contexts, especially in terms of how you show them to us?
1: Now that you say it, (laughs) (laughs) maybe. I think that I don't know if I if I thought about it in in that kind of way. I think that I I think of myself as a witness, just like the trees are a witness. And I've tried to record, make a record. It's been more about making the record than it has been about making the art. That I I really want the next generation to understand how we got here. And I think though the Ghost Forest are representative of where we are as a nation, that South Louisiana should be totally covered by 500-year-old oak trees and 1,000-year-old cypress trees. And our cypress in the late 1800s were basically clear-cut to the point where they did not even... Think, hey, why don't we just preserve a couple of acres of these trees? The only old growth cypress that you find in South Louisiana are the trees that the loggers rejected because they were hollow. But they're like still alive and they're hollow, but they're still alive and ancient. And so we have these places that are, you know, wetlands like the Everglades, which in the in the minds of Americans, I think, is thought of as this, like, great American swamp. People don't necessarily think magic swamp, important place of biodiversity, when they think about South Louisiana. Again, I think they think, oh, yeah, Mississippi River, Port, New Orleans, Bourbon Street. Yeah, it's... I often... (laughs) When I'm with visitors who've never been to Louisiana and I take them around and I do my little sometimes, you know, disaster tour, like, oh, which feels really, it's heartbreaking to constantly be downloading the truth. But I think it also is really important for people to understand that so many pipelines there's one that's right by my studio, which is connected all the way up to Boston and bringing natural gas and heating people's homes. And yeah,
0: there, there are, In lots of your pictures, there are markers of where the pipelines are. You know, you have, you have somebody standing and pointing or two people standing. As you look at the picture, you see that little plastic thing sticking up the ground with a red dot on the top that says mm-hmm. gas pipeline. Speaking of those people in your pictures, so lots of photographers over the years have been drawn to the Cancer Alley area, Richard Misrock, for example, and very often in their bodies of work, we see industry, we see the river, we see plants, and that's about it. Your bodies of work are distinctive in that you foreground people in a way that a lot of other photographers, especially coming in from other areas... You know, somebody like Richard lives in the Bay Area. Don't. So that's fine. Richard's not a... Richard Mizrak isn't, you know, I can't think of him ever taking pictures of people. But you've made the very opposite decision. Why is it important for you to have people in the work and a lot?
1: They're my teachers. They've been my guides. They're the (laughs) storytellers. I didn't realize when I was younger that I was only taking pictures of... Older people and younger people. I did not take pictures of, my, of people my own age or from like 18 to 40. It's really hard to like wrap my head around. And someone asked me once, like, why, where, where are the people your age? And uh, and I was like, oh, well, you know, we're, it's like that age is harder to make sense of. And also, the elders have a relationship with the land that I understand as do young people the people that are in my age group I think that we've been conditioned and have been compromised to believe that we have oil and gas or we have nothing and so many of my relatives either work directly in oil and gas industry or in some way are adjacent to it I think that being able to share the faces, yeah, I think that it's just like they are this place, just as much as a photograph of, of the wetlands, of healthy wetlands even. <laughs> and, and again, I think it goes back to trying to, even though it's not their voices, you see it in their faces, what they have survived. And for young people, I think it, it also is this, Sometimes I feel like those images from 20 years ago, there's something a little bit haunting with the images of young, of the youth, and I've watched those children now become adults, and they have their own children, and I've also, in recent years, have pulled away from the camera, and, you know, definitely doing artwork, but... I think that my analysis of place has expanded and I think that I also have had to put my own self out there with them. I wanted to like hide behind the camera and be the photographer and in making my Louisiana love the camera turned on me and just that vulnerability of, of allowing your picture to be taken. And what you can share in a moment without saying any words is sacred. And, and yeah, I think, it, I think that, yeah, it, it says it in their faces. And what they've witnessed shines through in darkness and in light.
0: Before we turn to those photo collages you've been making over the last few years, one more question on the earlier photographs that I think might serve to illustrate what you were just talking about the oil and gas question in a people in our age cohort face. And that's a picture titled Brent from 2005. And it's a picture that suggests the questions people who grew up in the area face. And perhaps really more broadly, the ways lots of Americans have to consider their relationship to corporate America and corporate exploitation. Who is Brent? And what is kind of the question that's embedded in that picture?
1: Brent is a cousin of mine, my father's first cousin's son. He is from Grand Bois, Louisiana, which is the place I was speaking of where there are these toxic waste pits in a flood zone right near the community. And that photograph was taken. There was a little tropical storm that had come through and I'd spent the night at my great aunt's house. And the next morning we woke up and it was, there was something kind of magical about everything being flooded and the kids were all playing in the water and running around and just being kids. And Brent had found this, it's a shrimp box, which is when you're shrimping, you put your catch into an aluminum box. And he had gotten into the box and was just paddling around the yard And he was just getting ready to graduate from high school at that time. I remember that morning being out with my camera and at first not thinking about the pits in the water and then realizing like, oh, if we're flooded here, the pits are flooded too. And all that material is like on the move. And I think that, you know, him being being in that box, which is... I always say that the Homa sovereignty is tied to food security mm. and and then him paddling around, there was something just kind of like, how do we get out of here? Where are we going to go? what's how how are we going to float this boat <laughs> like then for the next generation and the adaptation of crawling in the box? And you know i, I he's since left Grombois, like many others. And we're seeing now that as the storms increase in intensity and frequency, the traditional communities where our Homa people have been living are slowly becoming empty. You know, it's those who have means are either moving further inland where they can be, you know, and big quotation marks inside levee protection. Protection in the big quotation marks. The, the Army Corps of Engineers actually do not call the the levees levee protection systems. They call them risk reduction because they cannot promise protection. They can only reduce risk. But if you can live inside those levee walls, then you can get flood insurance. If you live outside, it's kind of like the medieval system. You know, if you're inside the walls, you're you know, safe. If you're outside, you're on your own. And of course, everything is changing so quickly. Even commercial fishing is something that is, you know, younger generations are not going into, into those practices, which is kind of scary to think about when, again, to think about food security being The pathway to sovereignty. And as people are moving further away from the bayou, you take them away from the bayou, you're taking them away from their place of business. It's a place of celebration. It's a place of family gatherings. And then moving them further inland where what they're between two impaired water bodies next to a Walmart. You know, it's like, that's kind of the migration patterns now are that people are either moving into cities or suburbs or out of state. And so when that happens, how, how these networks, these, these communities and generations of people who have been there for each other, seeing those kinds of networks breaking down, I've really witnessed that in a way that 20 years ago I would have never imagined.
0: That picture that you were just discussing, by the way, is in the show here at the Nasher. About three or four years ago, you started making a series of photo collages that use United States Geological Survey maps, along with photographs you've made and materials sourced from books and all kinds of whatnot, to, as you put it, reconstruct a history of the lower Mississippi River. And there are, I think, two or maybe three of those in the show here. I want to start Asking about those by asking about your interest in the USGS maps, because across US history, maps have been primary tools of empire, primary in the sense that after state funded or state backed or state violent atrocity or genocide moves through a region, maps were very often the very first extension of American imperial presence to that region. In the parlance of genocide studies, they were really often the first imposition of a new national pattern on a subjugated people's land or place. So what got you interested in using USGS maps?
1: I love maps, even though they are the colonizer's tool. (laughs) 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 And I recognize that they are their own art form. i Got interested in looking at the United States Geological Survey maps as I was working with two architects and they were, they were mining all of this public data around pipelines, uh, population, land loss, shortly after Hurricane Katrina. And so we were just in dialogue and they were the guys who were like, oh, you you know, there's all of this, public information, the United States Geological Survey. And for anybody who's interested, you can just Google it up and go to the archives that are open and you can go back as far as the record of the place is for the United States. Being that South Louisiana has been a place of interest for the U.S. for a really long time, we have some of the maps that go furthest back to the late 1800s. And when I, I was just curious because there are be squares of place and over time they'll change the name of the, of the map site. And I recognize that from, they do them every, I'm to say they do them every five to 10 years, depending. And from map to map, things change. And the 1920 maps I found in the Yachnishido, uh, earthen pyramid mound that's down Bayou Petit Caillou, which an uh, ancestor is said to have been buried on top of this mound that's over 1,500 years old. And there are many of these mounds all along the Delta and all along the Mississippi watershed and beyond, of course. And in the 1920s, the U.S. Geological Survey marks it as an Indian mound. And then looking at a map from 2000, it's just simply cited as being a cemetery. And then also communities that were on maps and were places, those territories have completely been erased from the 1920s to today. And that's happening more and more. And there's something with like when the United States Post Service pulls out, then a place Kind of ceases to exist. And what also we've been seeing on the ground, not so much, I mean, it's in the maps too, but like community, like the community of Dulac, which is at the end of a bayou. And what was Dulac further south is now the marker for that place is being moved further north where locals are like, no, that's not, that's not Dulac. I live in Grand Caillou or whatever, you know. So, so I think that it's just interesting how we define places of significance and how that changes over time. And I've been taking the maps and layering them. So I'll take a 1920 map, 20s map and then layer it with a map from the 2000s and to be able to, to then either my own photograph, which is taken in the territory, I'll then collage that, digitally collage that on top, or taking those maps and mining the commons and finding these historical images that are connected to these specific sites and layering. You know, there's a lot of these uh, historical images. They're stereograph images, really. I know them well. I love them so much. Uh, I gotta give a huge shout out to the New York Public Library. They have such an incredible, yeah. Um, I just love, love being able to dive into, you know, this evidence of time and place. And so there are a lot of these stereographs of uh, plantations, and and so then I'll I'll layer that into to, you know, to a map that's also showing where there's a. You know, aluminum processing facility and recognizing that, okay, yes, this isn't cotton, but where this plant now sits, there was a plantation there. And also that those economies and that mentality, that plantation mentality is still continuing. It just has taken a corporate form.
0: One of the things that really jumps out about those collages to me is whether the materials from the 18th century or the 19th century or a recent photograph of yours, perhaps, or the maps, maps from different times, is that in individual images, you know, within the rectangle, there's a tremendous visual equality. Nothing is really prioritized or pulled out over anything else. All of the historicizing elements contest together without, like, your picking which one wins. I think that even happens in your book, Return to Yakni Shido, Home of Migration, which includes your pictures, but at the same size and often right next to your pictures are pictures from, say, the 1920s and 30s. So I presume, given that this strategy is consistent across multiple projects, that that's something you've thought through and found value in.
1: I don't know if I have thought through it. <laughs> I think that I try not to think too much when I'm making, I mean, I think a lot when I'm making things, but the collages with the maps has been really liberating in a way of of sitting and processing and sharing what I've learned over the years and also the questions that I still have and being able to kind of weave them together in new ways. I think that I recognize that what I've been able to expose to in a public way is part of this lineage that goes back to there are these beautiful photographs that Marion Post Wolcott took in, in St. Bernard Parish, just south of, of where my home base is, and in the nineteen 19- it was it was like the Farm Security Administration yeah. that she yeah. was, at, which is awesome to think that she was, and also pretty radical that she was a woman by herself in South Louisiana at that time, <laughs> you know, hanging out with trappers. And there's this film by Robert Flaherty, the father of documentary filmmaking, which of course many of his documentaries were staged, <laughs> but Standard Oil commissioned him to create this film called Louisiana Story in the early days of exploration in South Louisiana. And I've always wanted to do like a double header with My Louisiana Love and Louisiana Louisiana (laughs) Story. And it's this beautiful, it's a really beautiful film. If you've never seen it before, it's black and white. And there's this little Cajun boy and his P-Row. And it shows this oil blowout that happens in the wetlands and all of these oil and gas men from Texas coming in. And, you know, it's like, wow, from that to being able to then share my Louisiana love and to be able to to show this other side and and also to connect it to that time when people were thinking this was going to be what would save us, you know I mean? But I also have to recognize that before oil and gas we had sugarcane so for a lot of people being able to work in the oil and gas industry provided this middle class that did not exist what is happening now <laughs> is that those solid jobs that you know people in the 50s and 60s and 70s were able to to go work in the refinery or work offshore and have security that the, that's not secure anymore. And so I think that being able to, yeah, to to contribute to that historical record and to reframe things and to, and to layer it, because I think so often we want to make, especially when we're talking about the South, it's like, oh, it's a black and white thing. It's like, no, it's not. You're the, especially along the Gulf coast. Like it is This is not, this is like a black and white thing. This is like a lot of stuff that has happened, is happening, is being planned for the future. I mean, even right now in South Louisiana, we have major port expansion for container terminals happening. We have this rapid liquefied natural gas that these terminals that are for export, that are that are either expanding or being put in, at the end of the Mississippi River. That is where you find these huge coal terminals as well. That are, of course, all all of this kind of material is being shipped all over the world. So
0: all of these, I should say, are in your work. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. I think about those those realities all the time. I mean, it's yeah. I think that I've, I'm grateful that all of the ugly is kind of in your face in South Louisiana because you can't ignore it. Whereas you can go to other places and it's like, oh yeah, people people are going to take my trash or I don't have to think about where, you know, where the fuel for my car is coming from. And I've had to be honest with that. I mean, I also, you know, drive a car and use plastic and am part of, you know, I've inherited and been born into this system. I also think that... <laughs> I'm at this point in my life, it's important to, to raise awareness about all of these things that are going on in South Louisiana and how they ripple out. But I've been also wanting to lean more into, into solutions and into possibilities and into remembering what really matters and also to, to really seek safe places that I can retreat to in good times and in bad. I, you know, I know that my future will have many more storms to come and lots of unknowns. And that, yeah, the territory that I call home is, is up against a lot. And in some places, they say by 2050, parts of South Louisiana will no longer exist and so also wanting to for the generation the younger generations to to know that we're in this time of radical adaptation but i think that the answer is not to run for high ground north of i10 i think that none of us can run from climate change no matter where you are you know we're all we're all going to to feel